right, welcome to day 221 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we'll be in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, Psalm 93, and 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, uh, we're finishing 1 Chronicles uh, today, and here we have another thing that we really didn't see at all in, uh, in Samuel Kings, and this is basically David's uh, I guess we could call it a farewell address to the people of Israel, um, a, a formal religious coronation of King Solomon and all of that. And so uh, we begin with all of the officials whom he has talked about, those whom we've been reading about, um, the, uh, the the commanders, the, the stewards of the property, the palace officials, the mighty men, even the seasoned warriors, all in Jerusalem. And David rises and um, hear me, my brothers and my people, just like Deuteronomy, right? Shema, hear me, Shemuni, um, hear me, my brothers and my people. Um, and uh, first, he talks about uh, the temple, and this is going to feature into his uh, into his speech here. He talks about the, fe- the the temple, how he wanted to do it, uh, but God um, told him that it would be. Solomon to do it because again, uh, you are a man of war and have shed blood. Um, remember, I I connected that with a, as a possible explanation for um, one of the things that was wrong with the census in chapter twenty one. Uh, next, he talks about the Davidic covenant. He talks about how God, how God chose him specifically, um, uh, and even a reference which. Uh, uh, apparently to Genesis 49, 8 through 12, God chose Judah as a leader. And then, um, and then within uh, that, of course, is that initial promise back in, back in Genesis that, that, that Judah would be most prominent in Israel. And, you know, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Um, and from his father's house, David, uh, David chose him of all, um, his father's sons. And now just as he has chosen David, he has chosen Solomon, so this is a securing of the succession, even though we do learn uh, in just a little bit here that this is uh, kind of like going to be the second coronation of Solomon. So Solomon is already technically appointed to rule. Remember the concept of co-regency that um, that I had uh, talked about, um, as well as um, the the fact that that they have already been by this point through the drama with Adonijah attempting to seize the throne instead of Solomon. And, um, and, and also, uh, one thing about this speech that we, um, I think, I, at least I first see it in, in verse 7 here, is the, um, the application, as we've been seeing throughout First Chronicles, to the post-exilic generation, the, th- the promises that they need to cling to, the things that they now need to do, um, in order to not make the same mistakes that their fathers made. So um, the wording of the Davidic covenant, uh, back up to the end of verse 6, I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Okay, there's the father-sonship language, of course, that Jesus picks up on and then um, transcends. I And then I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and rules as he is today. So this enduring Davidic covenant, and um, and also note that it's also not just the king's responsibility uh, to do these things. 
Uh, now, therefore, you guys also, uh, the entire assembly, everyone listening today, observe and seek out all the commandments of Yahweh your God, that you may possess this land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Uh, this forever language is, is very prominent, of course, in Chronicles. Then David goes and he, he addresses uh, Solomon, know, that, uh, know the God of your father, this is the king's primary task, as opposed to anything political, any kind of statecraft, right? Know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. Um, why? Because, and here we have a good verse that um, contributes to our understanding of God's omniscience, right? That God sees even into human hearts. The, uh, for Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And so if you seek him, he will be found by you, a promise that we still, um, I think, is, is tremendously important for our own devotional life and hopefully uh, even your act of, of, of listening um, to, this, um, uh, to these um, talks here, this podcast is, is part of that. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. For Yahweh has chosen you, Solomon, to build a house for the sanctuary, so be strong and do it. And uh, and then here's something interesting. Um, we've already gotten hints of this, but the temple, because I guess if you if you read Samuel through Kings, you kind of get the idea that um, David doesn't have a whole lot to do with the temple. Um, but here, the the plans for it like uh, um, are given to Solomon, which which is uh, which is something that David's been working on, okay? It's houses, it's treasuries, upper rooms, inner chambers, room for the mercy seat. So David is way more hands-on in the temple. He doesn't, he's not the one to actually build it, but he is the one to do all of the preparatory work. Um, he, um, you have the, um, also the plans for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, which we spent a couple days looking at, right? Um, all of the gold that David has reserved for all of the vessels and the, the furniture within it. And um, and uh, even, and then in verse 19, I think it's cool because you get, you get the idea that um, a lot of what David is giving him, the plan for all this stuff, um, it's, it's something that the Lord has revealed to him. All this, um, he, God, made clear to me in writing from the hand of Yahweh all the work to be done according to the plan. That's verse 19. So this plan that David is giving to Solomon is something that the, that the Lord has instructed him. And I'm reminded of like the instructions for the lampstand all the way back in Exodus 25:40, where it says that it was done according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain. This idea that not everything um, that is uh, all the features, all the, the way that things look, not everything is uh, expressly written out, but it's it's uh, uh, there are additional details that God reveals to his servants about how he wants things. And this is, um, of course, interesting because it also may, means that um, a lot of the, the temple, the, the, the way that things look, right, because you're like, well, why did they do this and why did they do that? Um, here it is said to have been something that God explicitly revealed to David, um, that's why um, it chose, he chose to, to build the temple and to make it this way, because even, even compared to the tabernacle, right, there's no instructions for the temple in Scripture. Uh, so I think that that's an interesting verse. And then chapter 28 finishes up 
um, this this final charge to Solomon here, be strong and courageous. And these words here, um, again, directed to Solomon, but very applicable to the generation that will be hearing this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed for Yahweh, um, God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service for the house of, of Yahweh is finished. Um, in uh, chapter 29, remember I, I spoke about how uh, there, David is is not simply speaking to the, the, the king, he's not sp- simply speaking to Solomon or of himself, but he's also involving all Israel in, in this project. So Solomon is going to need help. Uh, so um, God has chosen him, but he is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. Um, so he's going to need help. <clears throat> I've provided stuff for him, and so you guys need to help him as well. Um, and and uh, not only should I be the one who contributes to this, but you too should have a, a hand in that. You too. And it's a blessing to be able to contribute. It's a blessing to be able to contribute to the work of the Lord. So I think here we also have some interesting um, principles for giving, right? Who? So David asks in verse 5, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to Yahweh? And they, indeed they do. They make their free will offerings um, and uh, it... it, it uh, uh, tells us how much was given on that day, put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh, and <clears throat> this is a joyful occasion. Um, God loves a cheerful giver, as we read in Second Corinthians. Um, the people are rejoicing because they're able to give willingly, um, and David also rejoices greatly. Um, it would have definitely been temptation for the post-exilic generation to just be like, oh, well, Cyrus, Cyrus, the Persian king who's allowed us to come back to this land, he will fund this thing, so we're good, so we don't have to worry about it. We could just you know, spend everything we want on, on ourselves and don't have to give to the building of this temple. This is going to be a state-sponsored thing, but it's actually an honor and a blessing to be able to give to the work of God. Um, you get then this this great little hymn of praise here in this prayer to the Lord, uh, starting in verse 10, David blessing Yahweh in the presence of the assembly. Remember how much we're told to do this in the Psalms. Um, And he says, blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. You are exalted as head above all. Um, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over you. In your you you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And um, and then. In addition to this this great prayer of David here, um, who am I? What is my people that we should offer willingly? Like it again, it's an honor to do it, and it's like we don't even deserve to be the ones to give to your work. Think about like what a privilege it is to participate in what God is doing. And another really important giving principle: for all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. <laughs> right? Like everything belongs to God, and so the things that we receive are a stewardship. So they're not really even ours. 
um, the computer I record this on, the, the microphone that I use to record it. And they're not even really mine. They're, they're God's. And so when I, um, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's really how, I think really part of a, a good um, theology of possessions, a good theology of, of things, of ownership and of giving. Um, we, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Um, and, you know, essentially we're, we're not much, but you let us be part of, of, of your people. And that is a tremendous honor. We need to, we need to constantly see that as a privilege I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. Um, look at all these people uh, freely offering to you, um, and they're offering joyously to you. And um, keep forever, again, think about the post-exilic generation, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their heart towards you. Notice that that, that comes from God. The heart even the heart to want to serve him comes from him. All things come from him. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments. That's something, again, that comes from God. Uh, dovetails nicely with some of the principles we've seen in, in Romans, um, as well as now in 1 Corinthians. Remember, the difference between the spiritual man and the natural man is the Spirit of God. Here, the difference between someone who keeps God's commandments who joyfully serves the Lord, joyfully gives to the Lord, even that comes from God. So interestingly, right? Like not only are the possessions that we we give to you, we give to your service, not only do those come from you, um, you know, we, we give from what you own, but even our willingness itself comes from you. And, um, and then David instructs the assembly to bless the Lord, which they do, and they offer sacrifices, burnt offerings, and eat and drink before Yahweh on that day with great gladness. So uh, remember, part, that's a big part of, of, of sacrificial rituals is a celebratory and, and fellowship with God. And as I said earlier, they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time, and they anointed him prince for Yahweh and Zadok the priest. Notice how, how important the priesthood is here alongside of the kingship. Of course, those both of those things finding their uh, fulfillment in Jesus. Then Solomon sits on the throne, <clears throat> the throne of Yahweh, right? It's not even his own throne the throne of Yahweh as king in place of David. And, um, and and we get this summary statement. He prospered, all Israel obeyed him, all the leaders and the mighty men, uh, they and the sons of the king. Okay, the, so the other the, the the others in the in the king's family pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. Um and uh, Yahweh made made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as has not been on any king before him in Israel. And finally, First Chronicles ends with the passing of David. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. Um, he died a good age, full of riches, uh, full of days and honor, and Solomon reigns in his place. Um, and we're told of some other written works at this time. The Chronicles of Samuel the Seer, uh, the Chronicles of Nathan the Prophet, the Chronicles of Gad the Seer. Uh, notice the, the role of, of prophets 
um, in in the the composition of Israel's sacred history. Uh, it is even possible, although I don't know if we can know for certain, that what is meant by the Chronicles of Samuel the seer may be the the account that we have in the books of Samuel. Okay, uh, then we have a short little psalm, Psalm ninety three. Um, talking about the Lord's majesty and his reign. So Yahweh reigns, he's robed in majesty, he's put on strength as his belt, um, and because he reigns, the world is established and shall never be moved. This definitely kind of reminds me of like um, the Noahic covenant, right, where where um, the, the seed time and harvest and everything will will continue in the, in the world. You don't have to worry about the Lord destroying the, the world with a with a flood um so the the every everything that we enjoy about the stability in in the world that we do have is from God and it's because he reigns uh, your throne is established from old you are from everlasting <clears throat> and then we have the waters uh kind of worshiping God um the and these are things that are typically, this is interesting because a lot of times in the Psalms, the waters are, are like a sign of danger. They're a sign of, um, I guess, chaos that needs to be tamed, intimidation, things that the Lord delivers from. But those things here are themselves praising God. They are lifting up their voice. Um, the floods lift up their roaring. So you think of uh, the sound of the sea as as part of the praise that God receives, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. Um, Yahweh on high is mighty. And you just think of, you know, again, the sea is this great intimidating thing, but but um, it itself praises the Lord. And, um, and, and, and as intimidating and great as the sea is, we can't even see the, the other side of it. Um, <clears throat> The, the Lord is is far greater. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. Um, they're probably a reference to the temple, O Yahweh, forevermore. All right, let's go now to 1 Corinthians 5. So now Paul is going to go to a very specific situation. He's kind of gotten a little bit specific, right, with the factions in the church at Corinth. But um, now it's like a specific personal um, situation that he's got to deal with. And again, remember, <clears throat> there's some correspondence going on between the Corinthians and Paul, um, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that today. But remember where he talked about how the, the way he heard about the divisions, first of all, was from Chloe's people, and perhaps also from Chloe's people, it is reported um, that there is sexual immorality among them. Uh, sexual immorality, the Greek term porneia, is that's kind of like a blanket term for all of the um, sexual sin that God has disclosed to his people. And I think it's interesting that a lot of this stuff uh, presupposes the validity of those categories all the way back from Leviticus chapter 18, which is uh, the big chapter in the Torah about different types of sexual relations that are considered sin. And... So you know, I, I just think that's that's important to note in terms of um, in terms of Paul's understanding of the law of Moses and how it continues to have ethical relevance for Christians. That um, that the law still defines what God does and does not consider acceptable. And um, and here 
uh, this kind of sexual immorality that's been tolerated among them um, is tolerated not even among the pagans. So there's there's a definitely um, something that you know the church should be known as as a holy community, and even the pagans who don't have the law know that this kind of thing is wrong. And what is it? It's a man has his father's wife, which is probably a designation for like a stepmom, right? This is this is probably not his biological mother, although that too would not be good. Um, again, various forms of incest um, and this kind of relationship being um, uh, being spoken about in Leviticus 18. And you are arrogant. Now, why uh, why would they be arrogant about this? Um, is it like, wow, this is so awesome or this is so great? You know, it's unclear. A bunch of these scenarios are unclear. Like, does the has the father died? Is the father still living? What what does it mean for a church to be arrogant about this? And I don't know if we can know for sure, but I can definitely picture kind of like celebrating how gracious they are, right? We're a church of grace, not a church of law or something like that, right? Where you just have you know, sin being accepted. Um, and so perhaps like bragging about how, how tolerant they are towards sexual immorality. Um, and this, of course, is something that I think is relevant for a lot of churches today as well, uh, that, yeah, the church is a place of grace. Jesus came to save, uh, to save sinners, not the righteous. Um, but that does not mean that the church does should not care about holiness, the holiness of its members, um, and about actually following the Lord. So the church is not to be, is not to abuse grace, not to, uh, you know, like think about some of the, the ways in which we saw this in Romans and the diatribe structure there, right? Like, shall we sin that grace may abound, right? Like that sounds celebratory and something, that kind of attitude uh, we could definitely see as being interpreted by Paul as arrogance. Um, so it's a little speculative, but I suggest that that might have been the kind of thing that was going on. Shouldn't you rather mourn about this, he asks. Let him who does this be removed from among you. So this is um, this is a big chapter that lays out principles on what is called church discipline. How do we deal with unrepentant sin in the church? There also seems to be something public about this, right? Public and significant, right? It's not as if like every little thing we're kicking people out of the church for, um, but um, but there is, uh, as part of the process of church discipline, uh, there is removal. And one thing I, I want to say about um, church discipline, and we'll say more things, of course, as we go through this chapter, but... Um, this act of removal sometimes is like synonymous with church discipline as if this is all that church discipline is. But the thing that I like to emphasize is that in a healthy church, this kind of thing is like the final step. Uh, just as we saw in Matthew 18 with the brother who sins against you, right? And you go and tell him his faults. You bring, you bring two, two people and then you tell it to the, uh, you tell it to the church, you know, all these steps, if they're not, if they're not repenting, because the, the goal is to gain your brother. The goal is to, is to, is to help him, uh, put to death his sin. So really like 
all these things that the church might do to try to help one another to uh, persevere in Christ and to walk away from sin and to deal with sin, all of those things are kind of encapsulated in the disciplinary function of the church. Uh, remember yesterday uh, in Proverbs where we, we read that like a, a father needs to discipline his son, and why would you put him to death? Okay, like why would you? Uh, and and that's that's the idea, right? That the, the person is harmed by this. Um, it's 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 good to to um, to be disciplined. That is part of uh, the wise person accepts that, whereas the fool shuns it. And um, and indeed, here the first purpose for this kind of discipline, this kind of final thing that a church can do to in, in their attempt to turn someone from their sin, it is. Uh, just like we saw in Proverbs, right, for his good. So notice how he says it here. He says, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Okay, so there is a difference, right? Jesus tells us not to judge, um, and but there is a difference between seeing sin rightly and making a decision, which we absolutely should do, and being judgmental. Okay, uh, this is not hypocritical judgment. This is some, so so. There's there is a place for judgment in the church, but you know it has to be done appropriately. My dog is snoring behind me here, so that's that weird sound in the background. If the mic's picking it up, anyway. Um, so he, he tells them when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so gathered as the, as a congregation. Okay. Um, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to lift, and, and here is this remove from among you. Here is what the significance it is. Um, by removing him from fellowship, you are to deli- you are delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So two things here. Again, the purpose, notice the ultimate purpose here is his good so that, you know, uh, you're turning him out so that he he can fully experience the consequences of his sin, at least as much as is in your power to do, that I, I am behaving like an unbeliever um, and I am um, and I'm and I'm miserable because of it. This is what my sin has wrought, right? And the more you see that, the more hopefully it will have its desired effect and and the person will turn from their sin. I think it, interestingly here also, we have, um, something that helps us in our thinking about Satan, right, and evil spiritual beings. Notice notice that, like, Satan is happy to destroy the, the flesh, to, to, destroy, to destroy us through our sin, right? He liked, uh, he, he's all for our sin, and he's glad when it destroys us. But even that act of Satan is something that operates under God's sovereignty, right? Because Satan's purpose is not that our spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. No, that's God's purpose. Um, but but Satan kind of having his way with this uh, this this person who is in sin is part of the process that God uses in order to bring about repentance. One of the most important principles in dealing with sin, whether it be our own or other people's, is allowing them to feel the consequences for it, especially if repentance is not there. Right? I really want to see it for what it is. Um, and this is the reality spoken of here. Uh, the second purpose is to preserve the church as holy. Okay, that the that 
that the church is precious. And remember, he's already talked about how divisions destroy the church, and now he's talking about how toleration of sin is. And, and you can easily see multiple ways that this might be true, but like if I'm, I mean, I, I can say that in my own struggle with sin, um, sometimes, okay, looking at other people who have done similar things and being like, oh, and, and they're fine, right, serves as my own justification for doing it, right? Like, like the, the knowledge of, the knowledge that, uh, that, that sin is not really a big deal, it's not really taken seriously within a church, can be in t- compl- very destructive to the individual members and then by extension to the body as a whole. So he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? They're talking about the church, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And now he's going to use um, the Passover as a um, as an illustration, as a symbol of this. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is like the, pl- the place in the New Testament where you have that explicit connection between Jesus and the Passover lamb. Therefore, celebrate the festival. And here, um, how he describes it is, you know, uh, indicative that, like, yes, this is symbolic. This is not Jesus telling us, like, you guys better be having Passover seders every every uh, spring. Um, he says, the way that you do it is not with the old leaven, but the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um and then finally, you get this last paragraph, and there's a lot of cool stuff packed into this. So first of all, note verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <laughs> so we're reading what is called 1 Corinthians, but apparently there's a first First Corinthians, and we'll see this in 2 Corinthians as well. There are references here to other letters that Paul uh, wrote to the church of Corinth that we don't have in our Bibles, that are lost, okay? We, nobody, nobody has ever, uh, at least not, not, not since these, th- these days back then, has anybody seen these letters, okay? Um, but yeah, this is, this is part of the Corinthian correspondence. And um, so what, what we read as 1 Corinthians is actually not the first letter that Paul wrote to them. Um, and yeah, so he, he says, I've already told you about this, that you need to not associate with sexually immoral people. And then, um, something really cool in terms of like how we should think about sin outside the church, right? Like you look at the culture or whatever, and you see godlessness and like, what should be our attitude and our heart towards that? And so you're not supposed to associate with sexually immoral people, but, um, But then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Okay, so notice that, right? Like you have a mission to be in the world, to be salt and life and and light, to to bring people to Christ. And of course, if, um, if you were to not associate with any sexually immoral people, you'd have no mission, right? You would never be able to, um, to, to interact with the very people that, that Jesus wants you to reach. Um, so that's, you know, and, th- and that, of course, is unacceptable. So it's, it's not about not, um, 
not interacting with with them of course you you need to be in the world in the world but not of it is the way we usually say it um um it's, and so but but so there's a difference in other words as to how we treat uh professing christians who are in sin and people in the world who are not part of the church who are in sin Okay, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who, and look how he says it, bears the name of brother, right? They are a confessing Christian, a supposed Christian, okay? Um, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Notice all these things are made important here. And uh, interestingly, um, these... Um, uh, they, they, uh, why does he select these things here? Well, uh, as I said, like the, there appears to be like a public nature, um, a significant nature. We're not nitpicking every single sin. Like we, we would go nuts and everybody would be disciplined if that was the case. But, um, in the case of like, I, I usually will say public, significant, unrepentant sin. Okay. Um, and these things specifically are selected sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, uh, reviling, being uh, being drunk, right? Like an alcoholic, someone who's drinking too much, or a swindler, someone who's like taking advantage of other people. And, um, and um, but, the, but the, the selection of things here, and we can't always say this with Paul's like vice lists that he gives, but there seems to be a little bit of a logic <clears throat> as to why he chooses these things here. Um, notice that he says, purge the evil person from among you. Like that's the last thing he says today. Um, and, uh, that, that phrase actually comes from a bunch of places in Deuteronomy. It's repeated in, in thir Deuteronomy 13, 5, 17, 7, 17, 12, 21, 21, 22, 21, 22, 22, 22, 24. And, um, uh, Roy Kiampa and Brian Rosner, in their commentary, uh, point out, um, they have this little chart here, that these are actually all things from Deuteronomy. Um, so, like sexual immorality, promiscuity and adultery is mentioned in Deuteronomy. Greed um, uh, seems to be paralleled with swindlers and certainly like things like uh, kidnapping and slave trading, like in Deuteronomy 24-7. Um, I, idolatry, of course, is something that we hear about a lot about in Deuteronomy. Slander, um, so malicious false testimony, we read about in Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19. And um, uh, drunkenness, uh, so don't forget the rebellious drunken son from Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. So there seems to be some kind of, um, Paul is thinking Deuteronomistically, we might say here, Um but yeah, and he says, don't even eat with such a one. And I, and I do think that uh, that it is worth asking, like, well, d what what level of interaction is Paul saying um, that that they should that they should um, cut off, right? Like, does this mean like you can never even talk to somebody, like complete shunning? And I'm not sure sure that that's the case. So, um, and the reason I say that. You know, so like somebody undergoes church discipline, like once that happens, like um, in terms of them being put out of fellowship, can I can I not go to them and try to talk to them about like repentance and faith in Christ and and, you know, still have 
you know, a relationship where it's it's clear that we are deal, you know, we've we've done this because of sin, but we still love you. We still, you know, um, want to see you um, overcome this thing. Uh, can I do that? And one thing to keep in mind that I think we should at least we should at least be mindful of here is that when he says don't even eat with such a one, um, that may be kind of uh, I suppose we could say cultural. Right, like so. If you think in the New Testament about the significance of eating with people, I think of like Jesus, right, eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is taken of like an approval of them, a welcoming of them, um, a a um, uh, kind of like the these are my people. So you're eating with somebody that shows your you're, you're breaking bread with them. You have a you have a. Uh, uh, there's 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 something there that kind of like gestures towards approval. I think also of like Peter in the book of Acts with Cornelius. Remember, he eats with them, and then he's confronted for doing that when he goes back uh, among the um, the young Jew, um, Jewish Christian church. Um, I, I think of Galatians chapter two. Uh, Paul will confront Peter for only eating with the circumcised and not with the Gentiles there as well. Um, and um, certainly, so so certainly, even here in Corinthians, we learned that a big part of their fellowship together was table fellowship. There apparently, when they would come together, they would have a meal, and the Lord's Supper would be part of that meal. But there was also like a fellowship meal, and so it could. You know, do we today hearing this need to say I can never bring someone under church discipline out for lunch? I'm not so sure. I think that, um, you know, um, we definitely need to be wise um, and careful about what our actions communicate to people, but maybe we might want to think about it a little bit before we just totally cut a person out of our lives um, who has done, who, who is in unrepentant sin. And um, and again, his his principle for dealing with outsiders is here as well. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Okay, so it's it's really like it's not my job. While we do want to be salt and light, and we want to the the society to go in a Godward direction, like um, I should be much more concerned with sin within the church than sin outside the church. So it's it's not a news flash that people who don't know Jesus aren't interested in following him or keeping his commandments, right? Like. Um, uh, I, and and so I should have very little, if not nothing, to do with judging those outside of the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The people who sin, I, the the people outside the church need to hear the gospel. They need to be brought to Christ. Um, it's not my job to, you know, get like deal with the sin outside of the church. It's it's my job. To deal with sin inside the church, God judges those outside. He says, and so as uh, again that that quote from Deuteronomy: "Purge the evil person from among you." All right, everyone, that's it for today. As always, thanks for being with me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care, and bye bye.